Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. This is the show where we explore what's keeping the world from investing in progress, answer the questions on the minds of people in the know, and give you the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing that you desperately crave. Serving up the latter part of that, I'm Sloan Ortel. And I guess I'm, I'm doing the former part of that. I'm Ashby Monk, and I'm coming to you from Stanford University, where this is where we study the, uh, the sovereign funds and pension funds and try to make them approachable. Oh, wow. Wow. You know, I caught a glimpse of this, uh, this rarefied environment earlier today, dear listener. And let me tell you, it is stunning. Oh, yeah. They really treat us, treat us nice. I think your comment was, are you at a co-working space? <laughs> I mean, they got to they gotta stick to the brand, you know, uh, like, I mean, Stanford is startups, right? It is. Yeah. No, it's, it is not filled with mahogany or leather bound books. It's, uh, it's pretty functional. But, you know, I mean, startups make me think of risk, right? Because, I mean, like, you know, they're always, you know, trying to raise more cash, trying to, uh, you know, kind of get around the next corner. Um, And, you know, of course, most of them fail. We were were sort of chatting earlier. Like, I mean, I I found this slide, uh, you know, on Zero Hedge, actually. Shout out to Tyler Durden. Once again, once again, back there. This is, I come out as a a stealth Zero Hedge fan. but, uh, you know, the, the Deutsche Bank equity strategy team put together a slide with, you know, 30 risks to markets in 2019. Um, and 17 of them have happened. And yet here we are. What is here going we are. on? Here we are. The 30, I asked you sent me the, the 30 risks and, and reading it, I just, I have no idea what to make of it all. You know, I think I had this flashback to when I was, um, First on Wall Street before I, after my first stint as, as being a, a student, I then went off to Wall Street for, I think it was three and a half years. And, and I can remember people telling me that good news was bad news. And yeah. That bad news was good news. And, and just my mind exploding to be like, I don't understand why good news is bad news. And, and then the answer is obviously like, you know, everybody has different expectations and some of the risks are going to be priced into the market and some won't be, and some will be a surprise and it's the surprises that will, you know, cause volatility. And so, um, I, I have to admit in, in looking through the 30, um, you know, risks you've sent through, uh, who knows whether or not these are going to impact the market and yeah. in ways that we can't predict or what's priced in or what investors' expectations are for these things. The fact that they're written down on a piece of paper tells me somebody's already priced them in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the old uh, buy the rumors, sell the news, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean... Exactly. So I think, you know, I don't know what you think, but I would, this is one of those moments where I would love um, some insight from an outsider. Oh, I, my I God. Got, uh, I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> Um, cause yeah, I don't, I don't know what, how many intelligent comments I have about, about this, except for, uh, you know, of course to say that, you know, gosh, it seems dangerous out there and people should probably bring a towel or an umbrella or, an, or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, they're going to get wet. It's like the you, comedy show with the guy who used to smash the, uh, watermelons. Oh yeah. Gallagher. <laughs> What's the watermelon guy who smashed Gallagher. There you go. Uh, financial markets. Class, but- it's like. Going to a Gallagher comedy show. Oh my gosh! Yeah, we, I mean, so who should we call Rick? Call Slick Rick. Slick Rick. So Rick Booksnaver. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, he is Slick. 
he's a chief risk officer and he's a buddy of mine. And I, uh, I texted him to see if we could call. Cause when you presented this idea, I, uh, was pretty blank. So he, he agreed. Let's it's, it's fitting that we just were talking last week about how much we make. I'm giving him a ring right now. Let's see. Here he goes. See if he picks up. Oh yeah. Hi, it's Rick. Hey Rick. hey, Rick. You got Ashby and Sloan. How is it going? Where are you? Well, I'm in New York right now looking at a rainy sky, so I'm sure it's bright and sunny out there. Yeah, I have to admit, it, I don't see a single cloud in the sky. Yeah, so That's every the... time you talk to somebody in New York City, you should ask them, how's the weather there? And then you can talk about how wonderful it is out there in Palo Alto. There you go. <laughs> that, you, Rick, it's like that's the recurring theme on this podcast is it's beautiful where Ashby is and it's either super muggy uh, or, you know, just desolate back here in New York. Sloan's <laughs> in Brooklyn, Rick. Oh, is that uh, right? Oh. Yeah. yeah so, I lost sight of Manhattan for a little bit uh, today. Oh, there you go. So, Rick, we're um, trying to make sense. Sloan found a sheet that listed off 30 insane risks that could have the potential to blow up uh, people's portfolios. And it, it includes a bunch of the ones that I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're tracking as the chief risk officer of the University of California, and, but also in your, in your kind of guise as a technology founder and uh, an opinion writer. Um, and so we thought we'd call you and ask you about how you're thinking about risk. And and I think the first question we have for you, and won't take more than five minutes of your time, is what do we mean by risk? When you're when you're kind of thinking about risk, what, what is your definition? Because I'm not sure we have the right definition. Yeah. So when I'm thinking about risk, because I'm in a pension fund, uh, I'm not thinking about the day-to-day gyrations or little bumps in the road. That where there's going to be a quick recovery fund. But I'm looking at things that are either longer term sort of secular issues that can change the characteristics of the markets mm. uh, on the one hand, uh, or else things that are severe enough that it could lead people to make decisions that are short sighted, where, uh, you know, somebody should be talking them off the cliff uh, and they ought to just be sitting back but they might not want to because it, it seems like the world's about to end. So then you're, you're basically saying the risks you're worried about are the ones that change everybody's expectations about the future or, or push yeah. them into some irrational type of behavior that then can cascade through markets. Yeah, and like right. change the long-term picture, right? So it's not about something being disappointing for a quarter or a year, but maybe you know the base reality of an industry or – uh, you know, the base, uh, you know, kind of relationship between two trading uh, partners is changing. Right. So it's, yeah, so it's sort of the, the typical ups and downs that occur that are measured by sort of standard measures of risk, like value at risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, we measure that, you know, you need to know that about your portfolio, but that's kind of risk 101 and uh, is not really where the issues are. The issues are more in sort of a, a change in the state of the market or a, a move or a scenario that's so unusual or extreme that it would change your behavior. And and especially if it changes it 
inappropriately because you don't really understand the risk correctly. So, so let me like uh, here. Here's an example of a risk on this slide that we found. Uh, you know, this you know number fifteen of thirty is a U.S.-China trade war escalates further, uh, which you know you betcha. Um, but like, how would you think about that? In you know, from you know a, a sort of longer term for, uh, viewpoint. Yeah. So that's so. There's an example of risk that everybody knows about. Uh, it's going to wend its way through the economy. People can kind of see how it, think, it might affect things. Uh, and the thing to ask with the trade war is, okay, uh, let's say that persists. You want to ask, and then what happens? You know, what is the follow-on effect from it? And does it affect markets more broadly? Is it just leading to a downturn? Does it help precipitate a recession? So. So that's a risk that is out there and everybody knows about it. And people can generally uh, make adjustments. So I guess it's kind of like a known, known risk. Uh, and th there's nothing It's you know, the odds that there's something subtle that everybody's missing is pretty small at this point because everybody's picked all over it. So you don't want to ignore it. But I don't know that anybody's going to jump off a uh, cliff if it persists. Mm. So you you mentioned that value at risk is like the 101. Um, is the 200 level class here then the the scenario planning um, toolkit? You know, as a long-term investor, are you trying to stress test your portfolio with different scenarios like China trade war? Yeah. So the, sort of the intermediate class would, uh, you know, in the risk course book would be uh, looking at scenarios and looking at stresses, things that might be unusual that aren't typical of the past. And then then you get to the graduate level where you go into the question of, okay, when that occurs, how could that then propagate in other ways? What is the dynamic that's implied by it? So, so when we talk about a problem uh, and the scenario, you have to kind of, as I mentioned before, sort of ask the question, okay, if that happens, then what's the effect after that? And will that affect great feedback or cascades and have second-order implications? Uh, that's really where, you know, the interesting component and the, the valuable component of risk management comes from. Because the, the 101, the, the introductory and intermediate courses basically are a matter of engineering at this point. There are a lot of right. uh, systems out there that can deal with that. And, and so that that advanced course, is that the work that you've been doing around agent-based modeling and, and trying to understand how these effects move through markets? Yeah, that's really, from when I start, I started working on this when I was at the Treasury after the financial crisis, uh, working on kind of improving the financial system, uh, improving stability. And the one thing that was apparent is that it's not so much knowing what's going to happen, but what, when that happens, you know, how it cascades. And so that's when I started to use these Asian-based modeling methods. And uh, I use them now at University of California. And, and what they basically allow you to do is create a computer-based artificial world 
that hopefully represents the nature of the actual world with agents that look like the different institutions and the different sorts of investors that we have. And then when you impose some sort of a scenario or shock to to that agent-based world, you discover that certain investors behave in a particular way. And when they trade, that changes the markets in ways that then affects other investors who might then change the way that they borrow or lend and so on. So you can see how things work through the system. So if you're, an, if, if you're one of those uh, diversified investors who we all strive to be, you could then sort of see if you, you have you know, stuff in your portfolio that has offsetting second order effects, I guess. Is that, is that sort right. of the idea? Yeah, or actually, yeah, that you have uh, positions that normally are diversifying, which is, of course, what you want. But when things really end up turning uh, negative and when you really need that diversification, maybe suddenly they end up being more correlated. Uh, You know, that's more the issue that occurs, that diversification works really well until you really wish you had it. And that's the time that the effects in one market propagate out to affect another market and markets that might have not really been highly correlated uh, typically or historically suddenly seem to be fused together. And, uh, you know, the, the risk, man- your, synth- your core risk management tool of diversification uh, suddenly fails. And at that point, you need a, a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, right? <laughs> That's right. You do, Rick. For those that don't know Rick, he is a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which I assume comes in handy as a chief risk officer. (laughs) Uh, Last question for you, Rick. Have you run your agent-based model with one of your agents as Boris Johnson? (laughs) (laughs) We'll do that one next. (laughs) Do you have any views on Brexit? Are you worried? Are you guys thinking Um, about it? You know, that's actually, so if, if you think that everybody's crawled all over China to try to understand the risks of that, you know, the Brexit issue is even more front and center. And, uh, you know, everybody ha- can have a different opinion, but it's, you know, I think it's somewhat baked into current expectations. And I, I don't know, you know, how the market will move in either case because it's not clear what the weighted average of expectations is. But, uh, but the bigger issue there then is when that happens, you know, what are the consequences that are implied by that? Because there's already this arising xenophobia and uh, kind of a breaking up of globalization. And yeah. that might be more, uh, of, not a warning shot, but a first shot in an ongoing move towards a more xenophobic and lower globalized system. And that, of course, can have long-term implications for profit margins and, uh, you know, have long-term risk implications. Guys, so, you know, I, I guess I, I know Ashby said last question. I was, I was, I, can I sneak one more question in? If, uh, Do it. Uh, because I'm a terrible person. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I just I, I just wonder, like, I mean, we've been talking mostly about macro risks, right? Like, so stuff that that affects basically every portfolio on the planet. Um, you know, I, I wonder, like, you know, if you could, if there's an example of like a more idiosyncratic risk that would be kind of, um, you know, specific to, you know, a given portfolio and, you know, how agent-based modeling plays out in that case. So if you have a risk that 
is very centered. So, so let's take India as an example. So India is kind of having a baby version of 2008 right now, as far as I view it. Um, if you have a portfolio that's highly concentrated in India, or you're worried about India, that's India. You know, you don't need, if you had all the other agents in the world all acting the way that they act, probably there wouldn't be a lot of pass-through from an event in India to a broad set of other investors in other markets. The people who are in India and leveraged in India and also are holding, say, China, are going to maybe have to start to sell China because their India positions are under pressure. But, you know, what percent of people who are in China also have highly leveraged positions in India? So I think if you have a market that's very specific and is not uh, kind of broadly held in concentrated forms, if it doesn't have natural links to other markets, then you really can do a simple stress test and sort of say, what happens to my portfolio if India goes down 20%? Well, I have $100 million in India, so I'll lose $20 million. And, you know, in that case, that's kind of the end of the uh, exercise. So. Agent-based modeling really is important in the obverse cases of what you're talking about, where people are in markets that have a lot of linkages and connections and mm. where people who are in the one market tend to be in others and where there's leverage piled on on top of that. Gotcha. So it's an overlay for, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the risks that lots and lots and lots of people face to, to sort of add a deeper level of analysis. Right. Yeah. And, and where it's really hard to deconstruct what's going on because you have these sorts of different types of investors coming from different sorts of institutions being funded by different sources. And it's hard to really weave your way through to understand how one effect will pass through to affect another market. Uh, that's where the agent-based approach uh, ends up being important. That's awesome, Rick. Well, look, um, thank you so much for taking some time on your on your Friday night there. Yeah, think, seriously. Um, for those that want to hear more about Rick, uh, he he wrote one of my favorite books of all time called The End of Theory. It's new and it has a lot of the. It's not that new. I guess it's two years old, but it's newish um, as Princeton Press and and he's you know building a lot of stuff around agent based models. So Rick, thank you so much, and okay. uh, we'll uh, we'll catch up soon. Thank okay, you, Rick. Thanks. We'll see you. Thanks, bye, bye. I feel a lot more prepared to address the risk of having 100% of my portfolio in cryptocurrency now. I think I do too. I think right? uh, it's basically agent-based, bing, bang, bong kind of stuff, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's a, you know what it is for me, a reminder that I have no business being a chief risk officer. You need, oh, you, you need chops on a level, on a level that I do not, I do not have those chops. So. Uh, Rick's amazing. He's really, really nice to, you know, take 15 minutes out of his Friday night to chat with us. So that was awesome. Yeah, that's yeah, that was really awesome. And yeah, I mean, I, I personally feel, uh, you know, just like I can now not think about, you know, all of these, you know, risk outlooks that come out every year, um, you know, which is sort of what happens every time yeah. I think about this stuff in any detail. Yeah, I think he gave us permission to ignore Brexit, basically, at this <laughs> point. Didn't he? I think he yeah. might have. We should send him a fruit um, basket. We should send him a fruit basket or our soon-to-be-launched powdered beverage. Oh, which not, yeah. Which we're not talking about yet. Yeah, total secret. Um, yeah, I mean, and gosh, 
I wonder, is it legal to send through something so awesome through the mail? It uh, may not be. We may, may, not may be. need to hand deliver, uh, hand deliver that just for the sake of all of our sponsors. Yeah, exactly. Well, but you know, for a luxury beverage such as that, um, and, and, you know, <laughs> exactly. for those listening along, we're totally serious. Uh, you know, we are actually putting together a beverage. <laughs> oh, oh man. <laughs> I know what time that is. Oh yeah. I think it's time for dear Ashby. Uh, right. you know, we start to, when we start talking about luxury beverages, I think, it, you know, there's only one thing to do, which is take questions from the listener. Yeah, it's that time. All right. Let's see if I can answer these ones. Oh my God. What do we got? Okay. So, um, this first one is kind of interesting. Um, and you know, it takes place, uh, there's a, an Indian angle to this. So, um, hey. you know, yet again, not planning these episodes works out great. Um, the, I am an Indian citizen, uh, but I've kept, but my family has kept money in Swiss bank accounts since my grandfather's time. As of this month, the government has all of my account details and I'm worried they're going to take my money. Yeah. What, what can I do? That raises a lot of questions. I think <laughs> the first question that raises is um, whether the money's there illegally uh, sitting there in a Swiss, Swiss account. Like, otherwise, why would the government take it? I, I love that this is the question that we get. Um, I think we my first reaction is that... It's more clear. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should, um <laughs> <laughs> I, I think maybe you start with an email from you, uh, this person, to literally anybody that you have an active email address for. And, and you should say something about how you're Indian royalty and that you're willing to share a huge fortune <laughs> with the person you are emailing with. If they could just help you get the money out of Switzerland. One idea is you could ask for their bank account number so you can transfer the money to the person for safekeeping, or maybe see if they'll advance you some money to cover the expense of transferring, which obviously you'll reimburse once you do wire the money. Uh, no, in, in reading this, I had to I have to say I was like, "Is this is this the Nigerian prince in real life? Is that what we're doing here?" Oh man, yeah, you know, no this one may have come from my spam folder. Uh, uh, exactly, exactly. You're like, wait. That was actually a question for you. Would you help them get their money out? Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting, though, because I, I think like if you were to talk to a government minister in India, they'd tell you that people not paying their taxes is one of the biggest like social problems they have. Right. Like yeah, I, yeah. A, a former colleague of mine uh, was like trying to buy a house in uh, Mumbai mm. and he could not like, you know, he had the money in cash to buy the thing. Um, but nobody wanted to take it, you know, and do a taxable transaction. Everyone wanted to do this like weird off the books thing. Um, and trade right. That way. Right. Um, you know, so like, I, I, you know, I don't know how to feel about, you know, the, the bumps in the road. Cause like, you know, like you say, who knows if this is actually there illegally or whatever. Right. Um, but you know, it's it, certainly, I think for the good to have, you know, a government able to tax its citizens for the goods and services that they, um, you know, consume and provide. Yeah, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time giving advice to people with Swiss bank accounts where they're hiding money. Uh, you know, so. except for like get right with yourself. So I, I, I think, exactly. yeah, this, this next one is a, a classic example of the idiosyncratic risk, though. Okay. Um, I run a venture backed startup in Austin, and the firm that led my A round is based in China. Okay. I love working with them, but worry that the trade war will somehow affect their ability to follow on in later rounds of funding and doom our mm. company. 
am I wrong to worry about this? What should I do? Uh, I don't think you're wrong to worry about this, dear venture back startup founder. Um, you know, I think the first thing for, for maybe the audience is to say that um, it is a, a Series A financing is usually your first kind of big financing. It can be, you know, five million to 50 million, but it, it usually means you have some kind of a product market um, fit and you're beginning the process of scaling your company. And so you're raising real money. And, and the people who lead your A will generally have governance rights over your company. And there will be an expectation on the part of um, future investors that that A investor will continue to support the company at at the next rounds. Yeah, so, presumably they know it really well. They've been involved. They've seen all the stuff. And if they were to kind of opt out, that would be a pretty big red flag. I mean, it's the kiss of death, really. I mean, as somebody who's taken a few Series A's and companies, like it's the kiss of death if they don't follow on. Um, it's hard enough to raise a Series B or really to raise any external capital to do just about anything. When you're one of the key heuristics for assessing whether or not you're doing well um, is kind of broken. So this, the Series A investor re-upping at the Series B is that heuristic. Everybody wants to see that. And so if they don't, it can be, it can just kill your company independent of what your company's doing. Um, so, so the first thing I thought actually is like, actually now you have a great reason uh, for for explaining to other investors why your Series A <laughs> investor oh, didn't great. Re-up. It's a free one. Yeah, that's a great you one. Know, like you now, like when, you know, the, the time comes, if they don't re-up, you can be like, oh, look, look, you know, the, there's this huge problem with the China trade war. Um, so that's great. You finally, you have a beautiful excuse. I think the second thing is, uh, is probably more real, which is will the U.S. block capital coming in or will will China block capital going out? I don't think the first one's a problem. You know, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, what we call CFIUS, which reviews these transactions involving uh, foreign investment in the U.S., I, I can't imagine they're going to be blocking, you know, Series B venture deals. Uh, I think the bigger issue will be for the Chinese-based investor to get the capital out of China. Mm. And get it into get it into dollars and and into your into your bank account. I I saw, gosh, it was probably about two years ago. A few Chinese investors really struggling to to get the 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 money out of China and into the startups they had already made commitments to. Um, that that was something that was actually quite real because of the capital controls that were being put on on outward capital uh, movements. So I think that's something to pay attention to, but, um, I haven't heard anything about that lately. So I, I'm not sure it's still a problem. But I think the flow of capital is going to be, be free. Hopefully. I mean, I, you know, I, I saw, you know, during the, the protests, uh, last week, you know, a lot of people were taking out, uh, their Hong Kong dollars and, and, uh, converting them to us dollars, but, you know, hard to tell if that's an act of protest or, uh, yeah. you know, kind of strategic action, but, but like, you know, if let's say you're, you're in this, you know, CEO seat, right? Like, um, and you, okay. So all of these things are true. You know, you, you get kind of a buy on somebody setting out your, uh, your next fundraising maybe. Um, but like, you know, if you don't want and you know, you, you, maybe it'll be hard for the investor to get the cash out and, you know, maybe they can mitigate that by, 
transferring uh, you know some cash over to the U.S. ex ante so that they can fund you and all the other startups that they love and, and, and want to back. Um, but is, is there a, a move a, a you know, move to diversify your funding base that would not kind of complicate the governance situation in uh, in the startup unnecessarily? I hear this way more on the asset manager side of thing when you have a GP that's looking for LPs and wanting to have a diversity of LPs. Uh, it's pretty normal for a Series A round to be a single uh, lead investor. Um, oftentimes, investors have like a venture capital investors backing companies as opposed to LPs backing GPs. The, the investors into companies will often have minimum requirements that they need to obtain. So they need 20% of the company in order to meet their, their standard kind of protocol for doing a deal. In the, in the fund space, it's actually the kind of different rule where the LPs often can't be more than 10% of the fund. Yeah. Um, and, and so you see that diversification of funding much more on the kind of GP to LP side than you do on the company side. So, um, I haven't really seen people saying, gosh, should I be taking money from this or that, uh, organization? It's usually personal. Mm -hmm. So is the person bringing you the capital going to help you achieve your goals? Uh, it rarely kind of, um, morphs into a conversation about geopolitics it usually <laughs> is, a, is a conversation about what's your background human being uh and, and how are you individual human being going to help my company succeed gotcha so so yeah it's yeah. A, a yet another reason to ignore the macro headlines forget about brexit and uh you know throw the throw the wall street journal in the trash yeah, I mean, basically, we just go to the beach. I mean, this what this podcast is about. I yeah, think. you can just, <laughs> just stop worrying about the macro stuff and and take a good book to the beach. Ah, that's uh, hey, I'm I'm all for that. Except, you know, again, I uh, you know, in the time we've been recording this podcast, it started raining again, uh, and uh, you know, Ouch. Manhattan itself has disappeared from my view. So perhaps the the beach is not the best. Um, not your day. Not your day. Is that Dorian? coming up near you or what is that uh you know who knows um i it could be i think dorian's still in north carolina though i think yeah you're probably right it's probably um, near you yet but so you know i mean in the absence of a trip to the beach i actually have one more thing that we can worry about let's do it thank heaven um the you know so this one comes from somebody who's a few years out of business school and is working at a multinational company that signed on to the business roundtable's recent statement about shareholder value um, they say their words were nice, but nothing seems to have changed operationally. Um, should I whistleblow? Would anyone care? Would it help? I love this question. You love the uh, idealistic people. <laughs> I do. I love the naive and idealistic people. I love them. What has it been? Two weeks? You know, I think we all, <laughs> I think we all figured capitalism would be solved by now. And, uh, oh, and so here's, here's what I thought of on, on what I would do. I think. I would, um, first I'd enlist some friends, um, because my, my plan involves popping 400 bags of popcorn, <laughs> uh, and, and you're going to need some friends to do that in a few extra microwaves. And then what I would literally do is fill the CEO's office <laughs> with popcorn to the ceiling, right to the ceiling. Don't half-ass that. That works every time, actually. It does. It's to not half-ass it because you need it to cut. Like if there's a window, you want people walking by to see 
that's popcorn in there. Uh, and then you leave a note on the CEO's door that says each of your unfulfilled promises <laughs> are like a single kernel of popcorn. Huh. And you can put a little, little like funny face on there. And so when the door opens, you know, Got it. realization mm. ensues. Um, and for extra points, you can hide yourself in the popcorn. Yep. Wow. That's a great, that's a great uh, little flourish. I mean, does it matter if we use like kettle corn or, you know, kind of like the heck extra butter, no butter? Like what's the technique there? I think you're probably, yeah, probably no butter. Mm. Otherwise, then you're going to damage the CEO's office. Um, just to rock it up uh, a little bit, you know, I mean, like teach it a lesson, right? That's right. I think we're going to need some patience. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I I would love for somebody to pop that much popcorn and put it in their boss's office. <laughs> uh, but I think we're going to need some patience. These organizations have taken um, uh, a big step in acknowledging the power of stakeholders and and generating long-term sustainable performance. And it's probably going to take some while, you know, what if it has taken 60 years to get to this point? It's probably going to take a few more years before we can mobilize that that kind of mission in a in a kind of credible way. Yeah. So um, have a bit of patience. I love the idea of whistleblowing. Keep that whistle ready for when uh, for when it's needed. I think two weeks is probably not enough time. Probably need a bit more time. That's very mature. Uh, yeah. I mean, like I, I think um, the popcorn plan, uh, you know, if we could get like a Harvard Business School case study on that, if anyone's listening who has the power to make that happen. Um, I think that could really catalyze some useful change. Yeah. And, you know, like the, the balls at the McDonald's fun land, <laughs> that could work. That's a good point. In a pinch. In a pinch. Yeah. In a pinch, you could just create a ball pit. Yeah. I, I, think, that's how they, I think that's how they turned around uh, GM during the financial crisis, actually. I have a suspicion there's CEO offices in Silicon Valley that are ball pits because that's how we roll. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually, uh, I would have... I'm not going to lie, I've priced out installing a ball, ball pit in my home many a time. Yeah, they are fun. Um, but yeah, I think that about does it for us this week. I think it does. Um, yeah. Thank you all so much for listening along. Uh, this has been the Free Money Podcast, and it is not investment advice. No. No, not at all. But, you know, except for chill out, uh, go to the beach. Um, that is it. That is advice. It's not investment yeah. advice, but it's advice. That's it. Exactly. Um, but until next time, we love you. Bye. Bye.